Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Quick reminder that I recently started a Patreon campaign, so if you've been enjoying the show and you have a couple bucks to spare each month, I'd be so, so grateful if you'd sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash noendinsight. Today, I'm talking to Carmen Cutler about POTS and fibro and her graduate research about life with Emmy. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. I like to start just by asking, how was your health as a kid? Sure. So I think the answer to was I healthy as a child is yes and no. Mm-hmm. So I, as far as like energy levels, pretty average. Like I felt as a child that I, like I grew up in the framework of like, I'm a, a healthy, normal person. And, yeah. um, but I did get a lot of ear infections mm. and like every couple months I would get a sinus infection. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still seen as like, ah, kids get sick. Yeah. You probably caught, you caught something at school, but I was just getting yeah. like ear infections and sinus infections just consistently. And I also had eczema like on my hands and knuckles, mm-hmm. um, some spots on my legs and then like right at my elbow, mm-hmm. I would get, um, big patches. Um, but again, it wasn't really right. Like I would, I would put hydrocortisone on it. And, yeah. Yeah, so, all things that your doctor would be like, here's a quick answer for. Like, yeah. take this prescription and you'll get better. Go home. Yeah, and it was never really connected to any. Those things weren't connected to each other. Right. And it wasn't connected to a larger like, oh, like maybe something's going on. Mm-hmm. It was just seen as like, oh, this will pass and you'll grow out of it. Kind right. of Like kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And ear infections are so common, like in yeah. people that I talk to. But also I remember that as a kid that there were some people who just had that like recurring ear infections or get tubes in your ears or whatever it is. It's just a thing. Yeah. And I do remember like waking up in the night and I like viscerally remember what that pain felt like. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, like that was just my experience as a kid and I didn't know anything. Yeah. I didn't know what it was like to not have ear infections. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, But for the energy side of it, which is a big deal now in my life, like as a kid in middle school, like I could do the things I wanted to do and was a pretty mm-hmm. yeah. energetic child. Otherwise unimpacted. Yeah. So then when did things start to change for you? Was it a gradual shift or do you have a defining moment of before and after? It was in my last year of high school. Um. I don't remember getting like a virus or anything, Mm -hmm. but there was definitely like a couple month span where like I was kind of okay. And then I wasn't okay. So I was having a lot of muscle pain. Mm. Um, I remember like sitting in class in high school. Then as I went to college, like sitting in the desk was so painful. Mm -hmm. So I'd have like deep pain in my neck and shoulders. Mm. And then like, if I was sitting for a long time, like my lower back would hurt. I had really acute pain in like my thigh right above my knee like the very top of okay the very front of my leg right above my knee it just kind of got like condensed into that spot yeah and so I went to my 
primary care provider. And um, at that point, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Was that a pretty quick process at that time? At that point, yes. I think I only went to one doctor, just like went to the doctor that I, like my primary care. Um, That diagnosis didn't do anything. Like there weren't treatments recommended and it didn't... Like there was no outcome from that. Right. It gave a name to something which may or may not have been correct. Yeah. And, but like a kind of unsatisfying one from the perspective of both explaining what's going on and also offering a way forward. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. And uh, it was long enough ago that I can't remember if they offered treatment and I didn't do it or if they just didn't offer any options. Mm -hmm. Um, But the outcome was that I didn't, I just kind of lived with the pain. And I don't remember taking any, like I wasn't taking painkillers at all. Like I wasn't taking anything for it. I was just kind of like Mm -hmm. living through it. You were like, well, now this experience has a name. That's what's different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the, like the muscle pain aspect was the very first way that those symptoms came up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just like took a lot of naps to deal with fatigue yeah. and learned how to like shift and like sit and not sit for the right amounts of time for me. Like I just learned how to live with it. Yeah. And even now looking like if I think to myself right now, like am I in pain right now? I don't know if I'm just so used to it that it's stopped registering or if I have actually, if my symptoms have actually decreased since yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah. And that's such a hard, hard question. I know recently, I might've talked about this on the podcast already. Recently I did like a bedtime meditation because I was having mm-hmm. sleep problems and it was so typical, right? Like relax your toes, relax your calves, like going up the body. And when I got to the places where I have nerve pain, which is like I have nerve pain in my thighs and I have nerve pain in my forearms and it's not all the time, but I wasn't having it and I lie down and I did this meditation. And as I relaxed those muscles, I like felt it underneath. It's like, oh, I'm I'm in pain all the time. I'm just tensing over it. And then when I don't feel it, that's what's actually happening. It's like, right, right. We just learn to live with this stuff, like to cope with it and get other stuff done and sometimes it breaks through it's so weird when you start to realize that and like process that kind of yeah and the ways to compensate for the pain just become so average and everyday Mm -hmm. yeah Um, that I don't I don't see those things anymore I don't I don't think about them just because this is how I live my life yeah like this is what my body prefers yeah maybe it would just be a quirk of my body anyway or maybe it's like a chronic illness thing that has an explainable pathology who can know I mean it's definitely a coping mechanism just to get through the day yeah um so throughout there was just a long stretch my symptoms started in high school then through college um I just kind of lived with like low grade pain and pretty intense fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, there were so from like 17 to 23, like I didn't really seek care for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and was it getting uh, worse or was it changing at all at that time? Um, it was, it would change. 
um, I think seasonally, like it would get a little worse and a little better, but it wasn't drastic changes. Mm -hmm. Um, pretty moderate changes. Um, enough so that like, I would think, oh, like this is starting to go away. I'm getting better. But then like six months later, it would be yeah back to where it had been before or like oh this is getting worse what did I do yeah um so for a long time I just didn't do anything and this was all in the context of being in a family where the women in my family are also going through the same thing okay so I was watching like my my mother and my younger sister whose symptoms were much worse than my own Mm. I was watching them go through the process of seeing dozens of doctors and the, just the medical trauma that happens. Yeah. Not, not being believed. Like this is a story that we know so well, like not being believed going through treatments that don't work, like having to deal with the side effects from drugs that aren't actually treating what you actually have Yeah, because you have a misdiagnosis. like all of those things I was yeah. watching them go through. And so I wasn't at a point where I was, in enough pain or my life was being affected enough where I wanted to step into that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was definitely protecting myself by not, not medicalizing it. Like I just, I'm going to live with this and yeah. And if I I don't want to try to do anything about it because I know how badly it can go. Yeah. And also like watching people that I love go through that is so awful to watch and not being able to do anything about it. I think that's really formed like that's a huge motivation for why I started researching and yeah yeah and I'm excited to talk that I do more about that as we get into it because like one thing that really strikes me I just like the other day um I was at the neurologist's office and he was he was basically complimenting me for not freaking out in the middle of doing a bunch of diagnostic tests like that I was like Mm -hmm. calm and thinking about the whole process rationally which is I understand that it makes a doctor's life easier, but really like the only reason that I'm, that I'm behaving that way is because I've been doing this podcast. So it's like, I've interviewed so many people and I'm so familiar with how long it takes and how much of a mess it is. And like, we're just not exposed to that in the normal culture. And I think that's really interesting as you're talking about watching your family members who are kind of having this more severe, it sounds like experience and then how that informed it. Because so many people, I think, come into it like, I didn't know anybody who was sick and I, you know, grew up watching Grey's Anatomy or I grew up watching House. And so I assumed when my body started to hurt in unexplained ways, I assumed that I would go to a doctor and that they would help me. And like, when you know that that's not always how it goes, I think it really, really changes the experience in all kinds of different ways. Because sometimes, like, you can avoid some of the agony, but avoiding the agony of medical care might not be the goal exactly yeah I don't know so yeah so for me like growing up so my mom is a registered nurse Mm. and so having like if she didn't have the medical knowledge she had Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us would have the diagnoses that we were eventually able to get yeah so she had like insider medical knowledge also had chronic illness and then my younger sister had pretty severe things happening mm-hmm. and so watching that all unfold really impacted the way like I can't remember ever going to a doctor and just having an implicit trust that they were gonna help me yeah that was just not how I framed it yeah that wasn't um, happening for you yeah even with I feel like my mother gave like a really balanced like she loved nursing mm-hmm 
she loved that profession she also was in a position to really know where the weaknesses were and where in what ways we couldn't get help yeah how to circumvent that yeah yeah and that's that's I just made a really intense hand gesture but like that's such (laughs) a big part of it I think when like when I complain about medicine or when people that I know complain about medicine, it's not like all doctors are terrible and the whole profession hates us. It's like as a culture, we've somehow decided that we're not going to talk about the weaknesses of medicine and it's causing a ton of harm, which is a really different thing. Yeah. Yeah. And just the, our, the ability of the women in my family to get medical care mm-hmm. rested on my mom's knowledge. Right. Like she needed a degree and a certification in nursing. Yeah, just. And we, it was still a battle mm-hmm. for her to get care, even with that knowledge. Yeah. And like that shouldn't be a prerequisite to getting medical care. No, no, it should not. And ugh, a whole other thing that I'm so interested in, which maybe we can get into at some point, but like mm-hmm. it's basically respectability politics in medicine. Because yeah. it's just like, what does it look like? I mean, so much energy and thought and time goes into people thinking about that like how do I present in order to be taken seriously in order to be helped and like uh, that shouldn't be happening that or that shouldn't be necessary and I entered those situations like I enter a doctor's office with almost all of the social privileges that a person can have yeah like I'm walking in as a middle-class white woman who my mom is a nurse and has coached me on how, like what language to use. And so I'm presenting in with all of those privileges and yeah. it is still a really terrible traumatic experience. Yeah. And I end up not getting care. Yeah. I'm like, yes. <laughs> Someone uh, on Twitter, Nora, who I also just interviewed. So her interview will probably be out already when this one comes out. She just did a very informal poll that was like, Women, have you ever felt dismissed by a doctor? Men, have you ever felt dismissed by a doctor? Non-binary people, have you ever felt dismissed by a doctor? So there's three polls. And the most people who answered were women. But in all three categories, everybody said yes. And then there was one man who voted no. One man who was like, no, I've never felt dismissed by a doctor. Like, it must be really great to be. It really does hurt everyone. That guy. Um, Anyway, (laughs) so let's uh, jump back into your story a little bit. I don't Uh, know keep getting yeah, this so kind of chronologically so there yeah. was a period of time where I did not pursue any sort of medical care mm. I knew the risks and I knew what could happen and I didn't want any part of it yeah um so I finished my bachelor's degree and got my teaching certification I started teaching elementary school how um, is that which is oh, lovely I so I taught second and then third grade uh for six years wow um gorgeous it's such a lovely age I'm very biased but I love that age because they're just really coming in like it's eight and nine year olds and they're just really like a lot of things are coming into place for them like yeah they can tie their own shoes but like puberty hasn't quite started yet yeah it's just a really lovely age um and there were years where I was able like I'd learned enough compensating tricks Mm -hmm. to like get through it but it just the like the cognitive load, the emotional load, and the physical load of like, yeah, like kneeling down, like kneeling down, and like being on eye level with students, and then like so much walking, and like just the physicality of teaching, like yeah. you're doing a lot of things. Like you're standing at the front, you're walking around the classroom, like you're out at on the mm-hmm. playground, and like you're just doing a lot of moving. Yeah, it strikes me as being very energy intensive. 
path. And at that point, I didn't have a diagnosis other than the fibromyalgia one that I had. That you weren't weren't really thinking about, it sounds like. Yeah, I didn't internalize it and I didn't really think about it at all Mm. because it had resulted in nothing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I just kind of dealt with the pain, dealt with the fatigue. I would teach. I would do what I needed to do. Then I would go home and sleep. Mm Mm-hmm. And just kind of cut other things out of my life so that I could do my job. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty introverted anyway. So, like, it kind of worked for me. Like, okay, I'm going to prioritize, like, I'll see my friends, like, yeah, this many times a month. And I'll, I, like, section out my energy to do my job, do the social things I want to, and then really just cut out most everything else. Yeah. And I think that, like thinking about it that introvert extrovert thing it's it can be really interesting to be like well what part of this is my personality and then what part of this is my physical needs and sometimes it can be really hard to parse that out and it doesn't matter in a way but if you're like oh I'm an extrovert and my body requires me to be home alone for 20 hours a day no matter what like it's it's interesting to navigate that how sometimes I think personalities can make it easier or harder to cope with the same situation sure and I do think that I am for sure naturally introverted because I get my energy and recharging from mm-hmm. being alone and like mindfully thinking about things. Yeah. But I also think that my personality would be much different if I didn't have chronic illness. Right. I think I would be a lot more like vivacious. Yeah. <laughs> so tired all the time. Yeah. I always wonder because I'm like a very plan type A, like plan oriented person. And I'm just like, I wonder if I would be less rigid if it didn't like if the consequences weren't so severe for yeah. forgetting water or forgetting whatever it is, you know, it's Absolutely. just one of those things. Um, okay. So, so you've been so teaching, I was, et cetera. I was teaching, it was getting harder and harder. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got to a point where it was the chronic illness, the symptoms were getting in the way of doing my job. Yeah. Um, I was getting more and more brain fog. And I think what was happening is that I didn't realize that like the, the types of movements I was doing. So like crouching down in a student's desk, helping them and then standing up immediately. Mm-hmm. I was doing that like multiple times. And then I didn't know that that was, related to my chronic I didn't have any framework to know it was related to my chronic illness so yeah things I wasn't able to compensate for things I didn't know about right of course so like it got to a point where I wasn't I was having so much brain fog and again I didn't even have words to describe what it was like I was just cognitively not able to like navigate like I'm gonna plan this curriculum and unit like I wasn't able to do it as well as I had been in years previous Mm -hmm. so it got to a point where like I decided that I would actually see a doctor and that decision was really influenced by my younger sister had finally gotten a diagnosis after a decade Mm -hmm. well she just started having symptoms when she was 18 months old so it had been 20 years yeah but a decade of like really searching Mm -hmm. um so she had traveled out of state to go to a clinic They'd given her a diagnosis, but nothing else. Like, this is what you have, Good and luck. we can't help you with it. Yeah. You can drive back home and Take figure that it out with yourself. You. Um, but getting the – so she was diagnosed with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Okay. Thoughts, 
With only POTS? Um, at that time, that was the diagnosis that she okay. had. Okay. That's which did, it, also interesting. It, it explained some of what was going on with her, but not all. Mm-hmm. But because she got that diagnosis, I was able to go to her doctor that she'd been seeing. So she found a doctor who was able to treat that. Mm-hmm. And because she and my mom had done all of that labor to get there, like I was able to just go to that doctor. Yeah. Do the, te- I'm forgetting the name of it, but where you like lay down, they take your heart rate, you sit up, they take your heart rate. Yeah. There's, so that one, I actually don't know that that specifically has a name because it's it's just like the kind of in-office version of, of right. what, the tilt table test. So I don't think that there's a formal name for that. Cause I see like casual references to it all the time and have also experienced it, but I don't know that it has a formal thing, but I know what you yeah. mean. Yeah. So I did, I did that and it was clearly POTS. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, um, I was 29 mm-hmm. at that time. Um, that was 2016. And that's when I got the POTS diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so at that point I was able to compensate with like lifestyle changes. Like I started upping my salt intake. I started making sure I was drinking enough water. Yeah. I lifted the head of my bed. Yeah. I started wearing compression. Yeah. And so for a while I also stopped, uh, I stopped teaching and I moved out of state and got a job, um, doing curriculum writing. So it was a desk job at an online uh, educational company. And so I was so still using my teaching degree, mm-hmm. um, but it was in an office and it was much more doable and it was yeah. way easier than teaching. Yeah. So, so you're going to, a lot of... to an office, but like sitting down to work basically yeah. in one place as much as you needed to. And I was able to negotiate because of the type of work it was. I was able to negotiate working from home two days a week, mm. which absolutely that allowed me to keep that job and yeah. to be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I find I need to do so much of my computer stuff while lying down. Like, and actually, for I did quite a few interviews lying down in the last month. So yeah. sometimes it's just you're like, I can't do this in an office, but it's yeah. the only way forward. So thank you. Yeah, I was really glad to be at a company where I could ask for that and it was a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, company wide, as like a, a venture to reduce air pollution mm. like everyone could do a work from home day to reduce commuting. Mm-hmm. yeah um so i just negotiated up from one to two mm-hmm. so that was a good situation to be in um at that point so i had my pots diagnosis i now knew like all of the lifestyle things i could do for it and that helped enough that i hadn't really started any medication for that yeah um and i was just doing the lifestyle things um and just like learning everything I could about like, okay, what are people, what are the hacks? Like, what are people doing to compensate? Yeah. And like, what is the physiology of what's happening, which is so complex and I don't understand all of it yeah. still. And but... I think, and I think it's also still like, there's some conflicting theories for, for yeah. dysautonomia in general, right? Of like, well, it's a neurological thing that impacts your heart because it's your dyson, your, no, your autonomic nervous system. But like, we don't fully know why. And like, where does your blood go? You know, because one of the features is low blood blood volume, which I've also heard explanations for that. But it's it's a really deep hole you could go into. I agree. Yeah. And it manifests differently for different people. Mm-hmm. And um, it's 
for me, so I have uh, POTS diagnosis and also hypermobility, mm. um, but that's pretty mild. So I'm in the mild end of EDS. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. So would that be officially a hypermobile spectrum disorder? Yes. Yeah. Um, it That hasn't manifested in severe symptoms for me, mm-hmm. um, but I have it. Yeah. And that's from my understanding, it's like, it can be so many different things. Any of these like connective tissue problems, because you don't know where they're going to impact and how much pain it's going to cause basically, or what other symptoms it's going to impact. So gotcha. But that could be related to some of your chronic pain issues that you developed early. Right. Yeah, it absolutely could be. Yeah. Um, so at that point, like I had a diagnosis, I'd already lived my my whole life had already been informed by like what it means to have chronic illness because of the family that I am in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sometimes when I approach people who have had different experiences than me, I just, I, I re- it, it really shows me how, how different my experience was. To yeah. Most of the people's because chronic illness has just always been on the table. Mm-hmm it has always been something that's impacted how I view medical practitioners and treatments and like it's the lens through which I see a lot of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just even having a fami- familiarity, gosh, my brain is fine today, but yeah, seeing it compared to so many people have just have no idea that these even exist. But, but I think like you just said with POTS about teaching, that was also my experience with POTS is that I didn't, I didn't know that it was a thing. It never occurred to me that going from, say, crouching to standing or sitting to standing could trigger something in such an extreme way. And so even though I also have um, like vasovagal syncope, so I have Mm -hmm. fainted before, like a triggered fainting. So I know that one feeling and it's similar but also different. So tunnel vision was just always like, oh, yeah, I'm just a person who gets tunnel vision sometimes. But like, no, there's all these other things that could be going on that can be making you uncomfortable in much more subtle ways. And unless you know to check your heart rate, you would never think to check your heart rate when you just feel bad, like vaguely bad. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And to backtrack a little bit, um, I had so in that while I was teaching, I had gone to a nurse practitioner um, that my family had seen a few times and I went to her because I was so tired. Um, and so she gave me some like vitamin supplements, which are great. And I still use some of those. Um, but I had some labs done and she really focused in, I have such mixed feelings about this particular medical provider because on the positive end, like she was so willing to try things and Mm -hmm. then meet with me. I just, saying it out loud like I've been so fortunate in the physicians that I've uh, come in contact with this is not the usual route that people go through I've benefited from other people's work for sure Mm -hmm. um so like on the positive end she was willing to like meet with me try a bunch of different medications and kind of see how they work and she was very open to lots of different like let's try and then she would she would listen to me about how it worked out and then we would yeah. Just the negative side of that was that from the labs that came back from my blood work, she really honed in on my thyroid. So my thyroid levels were just a little bit off. And so she, I tried every thyroid medication. Okay. So like available. synthetic, like synthetic thyroid type stuff and 
bio- all of the yeah, yeah all of the like, thyroid replacements yeah then like natural natural direction all of the synthetic stuff i tried every single one and so that diagnosis of hypothyroidism was unhelpful and i like looking back like not accurate due to the fact that all of the treatments were really damaging yeah instead of helpful right so that was a couple years of taking medications that weren't helping what i had and then i had to deal with all of the side effects yeah like throwing other systems into disarray maybe yeah 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 for sure um and that was before i'd gotten my pots diagnosis okay so that experience made me just so careful about yeah like what you go chasing kind of (sighs) yeah um I didn't want to lose the willingness to try things because I had seen and like all of this is in the context of my mom is trying different treatments my sister's trying different treatments and seeing the variability even between us like we share really similar DNA like and environment like mm-hmm. just seeing how different medications or non-pharmaceutical treatments would work differently for us mm-hmm. and then being able to pool that information yeah yeah was really helpful yeah so, like dinner closer to a trial than most people get yeah yeah uh so dinner time at our house was like <laughs> we would talk about dating or disease yeah and like those were the two topics yeah um and so we really being able to navigate it together has been it's just so helpful mm-hmm. um so i didn't lose the the willingness to like try different things because i knew like you have to like you just have to know your body really well and really track how you're responding to different medications but that experience of trying all those thyroid medications when that wasn't actually what was wrong it made me tired so i just kind of went yeah. off of went off of all the things I'd tried yeah, and didn't really do, excuse me, didn't really go, I didn't go back. I didn't go to anyone else until I got my yeah. diagnosis at age 29. So until um, you so, were like, POTS is the thing worth investigating and this is a practitioner that I think will be helpful. Yes. Yeah. So the prote- practitioner that my sister had gone to, um, his, he was trained and his, like his mentor, um, trained him that first and foremost you believe the patient yeah and i would say that his bedside manner is like really straightforward and like maybe a little gruff yeah like he's he's not a warm person right but he is incredibly effective Mm -hmm. because when you bring information about your body to the table his frame of reference is to believe you and then to work from that information yeah. That changes everything. Yeah. Like the yeah. reason I was able to get help is because my doctor saw me in that way and sees all of his patients in that way. Yeah. That's the number one thing. Like, yeah. again, just because when we get into like in these conversations, there does end up being a significant amount of complaining about doctors. But it's not like everyone's out there wishing that their doctor had all the answers or wishing that their doctor was perfect or that they don't understand that medicine has a lot of spaces to grow, we'll say. It's this thing of like, there are so many doctors who don't believe patients and there's a huge cultural legacy for why. And I, and like, there's a a lot of privilege, like you mentioned earlier, but like 
that's the number one thing that I would love to see like prioritized by all practitioners for sure. It changes lives. It's amazing. It really does. Um, so in his medical training, he'd been, he learned briefly about POTS and dysautonomia. Mm -hmm. Um, but then was told like, this exists, you're never going to see it. (laughs) Um, great. Which was incorrect because now he is one of 23 certified specialists in the United States. Um, for doing the, just amazing work for just, just in me yeah um it's amazing to even call it rare now i should go through the transcripts of all the interviews that i've done because pots is one of the most common comorbidities yeah. like yeah something i learned from this doctor is that one in a hundred teenagers yeah will have this yeah so he's primarily a pediatrician okay and so he would see just tons of teenagers mostly teenage girls yeah who are having the onset of dysautonomia yeah god okay um, amazing so, and so fortunate yeah. to live close to this doctor um and just like oh, just so much privilege of like my parents had known him when he was young and like knew his family and yeah. like we had these like personal connections that got us to a place where we're able to get a diagnosis. And then with a diagnosis, we had the knowledge to like make lifestyle changes, try different pharmaceutical things. Yeah. Um, so at the point where I moved away, so I moved out of state, I was doing the curriculum job, kind of hanging in there, just doing the lifestyle stuff. Mm-hmm. Had my two days working from home every week, kind of doing okay. But it still got to a point where, like, I was struggling so much just to have the energy to do my job. Yeah. And I really wasn't doing anything else. Right. Like, I was going to work, and then I was lying down the rest of the time. Yeah. Relatable. And so I went to a new doc. So I'm in a new place. Um, went to a doctor, and in retrospect, I should have run away. Like I should have seen the red flags and run away, but I sat across from him and he was like, Oh yeah, I know all about pots and I can absolutely help you. Great. And that was a false. (laughs) He did not know all about pots and could not help me. Um, but just the confidence of it should have been a big red flag. Yeah. Because people who actually know about it don't talk like that. Yeah. Yeah, um, there are things that that might be true. Like, I don't know what offhand, but like there are situations where a doctor might be able to say that and have it be totally accurate. But dysautonomia, where is ag- not one of them. Yeah, again, where the cause isn't even really understood. Like, yeah. if you don't know what's causing it, there's no way you can tell me that you can like totally manage every case. Anyway. <laughs> so at the time, I was like, nah, like sure thing. you're you're full of it. Like this this guy's really arrogant. Like, that was not a severe enough reaction for me. Like, I should have been like, okay, I'm not coming back. Yeah. Um, but at the time, I just thought, like, nah, I just want a do. little bit of help. Yeah. And it's easy um, to be like, well, I know kind of enough that I'll manage my own care and, like, right. use this pot- potentially shitty doctor as a resource. So if I know yeah. what I want to ask for, I can go in and make that happen. But, like, sure. sometimes that isn't how it goes also. Yeah, it didn't pan out well. So I, again, did a bunch of labs. He looked at, like, all my levels of everything and decided that I needed – so my hormone levels have always been um, pretty out of whack. Um, And he decided that that was the thing. So he put me on estrogen cream. 
potentially very intense. <clears throat> Which made all of my POTS symptoms just exponentially worse. Ugh. So I started taking, like, it started messing with my hormones. Right. Um, which threw all of my pot symptoms into the overdrive. Hmm. Um, so then, like, I couldn't stand up. I was having to, like, patchwork of, like, calling in sick and, like, asking my boss if I could work from home. Yeah. Extended period. Like, it was not great. Um. So at that point, I decided it is worthwhile for me to fly home, see the original doctor, mm-hmm. and that's when I started um, pharmaceutical treatments. Okay. And so that was a process of, like, finding what would work and what wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, so that's been a few years of, like, okay, does this drug help? Can I take the generic? Can I take one that's similar but not quite the same? And there's, like, kind of getting a a drug plan in place in addition to the non-pharmaceutical. And what has that looked like? Because, like, beta blockers can be recommended. I don't know a lot about the pharmaceutical interventions for POTS. Um, So there's uh, ones that, uh, to increase your... I wish I knew more about, like, the physiology behind it. Yeah, as technical as you can get, but it's okay. This is not not a science podcast. I'm not not a biochemist, um, but my understanding is there's medications to increase basically your blood volume mm-hmm. um, and then also medications to lower your heart rate. Mm-hmm. I think that I would be what beta blockers do, I believe. Yeah. Um, I there's So there's a test you can get that, um, that tells you how you metabolize different oh. medications, which I have not gotten, but my sister did. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That is something in the future that I think would be helpful for me to get mm-hmm. of how I metabolize different um, things. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I've noticed that's different even between me and my family members. Right. Like we, will, we will respond differently to different medications. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I just put together like, okay, these heart rate and blood volume medications and like even figuring out like which manufacturers, like when the pharmacy, even to this day, like every time I go to the pharmacy, I have to have the conversation again of you cannot change the manufacturer on this. Yeah. Like, because these are the outcome. Like, yeah. Depending on what fillers they use or just like all of the things that go yeah. into drugs that we yeah. don't, that we aren't like necessarily told about as consumers. Yeah. So I was yeah. doing some research and it can be up to like 20% different mm-hmm. <clears throat> between like the same drug Mm-hmm. from two different manufacturers can be up to 20% different ingredients. And that's, yeah. huge. that's huge. Yeah. So I hope I'm remembering that percentage correctly, but I think that's it. And yeah. So just over and over again, talking to the pharmacist about like, this one is working. I need, I need this specific manufacturer because if I don't have this one and I have this other one that tends to come in instead, like I will be very dizzy and I won't be able to stand up. And mm-hmm. like, Yeah. It has a dramatic effect. Wow. So that's an ongoing thing. Yeah. Um, so have you found, because this is all now relatively recent. Yeah. Are you so now ha- we're up to the present? Yay. Kind of. <laughs> so, so are I, you still experimenting with those or do you, have you found something that's working pretty well for you at this time? I have. Yeah. So I have, I have my treatments pretty locked down. 
mm-hmm. um at this point it's just like fiddling with dosages and yeah and just kind of matching them to that the natural ebb, ebb and flow of if i'm getting a little bit better or a little bit worse kind of responding to that but yeah, i am a pretty like good titrating. yeah I'm yeah in a good place where i kind of know which medications i respond well to mm-hmm. um and i haven't been trying anything new for right the past about a year wow that's but, a long that's, time to that's be remarkable like, yeah that means that things are pretty stable usually in yeah. my experience even if you're like well this is chronic illness but nothing has happened that has made me be like no what can i do about this problem yeah which is just it's beautiful compared yeah. to where i was before yeah um so once i started because i have this amazing doctor because i was getting tr- actual treatments mm-hmm. um I applied to graduate school. Um, So at that point, I was still thinking along the lines of like, I'm an educator. I've always wanted to get my master's degree. Now that I was on treatments, like, I thought like, like, maybe this is the time. Like, I'm doing well enough where I think I could do it. Mm -hmm. I have like the social support that I need for this, like through my family and everything. And so I was just looking through master's degree programs and initially looking through like um, masters of education, um, like reading specialist kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I came across Arizona State's, I was reading through like all of the master's degrees that they offer. And in the social sciences department, um, I found the masters of social justice and human rights. Um, so I was reading through it and I just want to read from the website like as I was reading Mm -hmm. I came across the description and I just kind of stopped and was like they took all of my like personal core values and made a master's degree out of it (laughs) so their description is uh the MA program in social justice and human rights addresses urgent social issues related to human security labor migration children family education and the environment the coursework in this theoretically and methodologically rigorous program examines social issues in contexts defined by multiple and intersecting forms of social identity and disadvantage, including gender, race, ethnicity, class, sexuality, and nationality. And so I applied and uh, that was the only program I applied to. I got in, Mm -hmm. I feel very fortunate about. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wrote all of my like uh, personal statement, like statement of intent application materials about like, I'm an educator and I'm interested in like creating literacy programs for at-risk populations and that sort of thing. Like very literacy based. Mm-hmm. Um, I got into like the first semester of theoretical coursework and I was learning about like all of these social systems and a, just a lot of reading about biopolitics and being like power over bodies mm. and how government systems and medical systems and criminal justice systems have power over bodies. And so as I was reading all of that, a lot of it was centered on immigration and and labor. Mm -hmm. But from my life experience, I was reading it in ways that apply to healthcare. Yeah. And so it was a few months in where I just had this realization that like, oh, I'm going to write a thesis about healthcare. Yeah. Now (laughs) it's like you have to. Yeah. 
yeah i just saw all of these different layers just click into place yeah and so in my coursework um yeah all of that uh theory for me was very visceral like i want to be able to create research that addresses these issues in a way that makes the world better for the people I know. Right. And the people that are going through really hard things with their doctors when they don't have to be. Right. So um, I did an internship with um, a patient advocacy group for myalgic encephalomyelitis. So ME, um, sometimes called chronic fatigue syndrome, but that's not the name that I like to use for it mm-hmm. um, because it's not helpful. No, it's not helpful at Uh, all. (laughs) It has uh, caused a lot of harm. So I started doing interning for for this patient advocacy group for ME uh, because locally, like, a lot was going on with them. They are pretty vibrant. Um, They're doing a lot here locally. And so I don't have that chronic illness, but there's a huge overlap in patient experience and also a lot of people with ME also have POTS. Oh, yeah. And, and so... I just... I was recently reading, like, the diagnostic criteria recommendations that included orthostatic intolerance. Like, yeah. it's it's in there uh, as yeah. an either-or. I don't know that this has been adopted yet, but, like, one of the popular criteria is that yeah. you either have um, PEM, so post-exertional malaise, or mm-hmm. orthostatic intolerance, which can feel really similar. Just and I would say, the, on a side. <laughs> yeah, I meet the diagnostic criteria for ME on everything except for post-exertional malaise. Mm-hmm. I don't have that. Yeah. Um, so there's enough of an overlap and it was an organization that I really wanted to work with. So I did my internship with that, mm-hmm. which then influenced my uh, focus for my thesis research. I originally wanted to do thesis Sorry. research interviewing people with all different types of chronic illness. So I wanted to look into endometriosis. I wanted to look into fibromyalgia. I wanted to look into dysautonomia mm-hmm. and myalgic encephalomyelitis. And that was untenable yeah. for one person to do. And ultimately, like I did my thesis research, the interviews, the analysis, the writing and defending it in six months. Wow. Which is so fast. And yeah. so I really narrowed down into okay i'm gonna do i ended up doing seven interviews all people with with me people with me yeah Mm -hmm. which was it was a good setup for it was doable like i was able to do that and then i was really able to go in depth with those interviews Mm -hmm. which is what i wanted and i was really trained with my coursework to do like interpretivist research and like co-generating meaning Mm -hmm. with participants i um Oh, I loved my research methodology course, <laughs> methodology courses. Um, so I had these research courses about just the difference between positivist research and interpretivist, where positivist is like the researcher shows up as a neutral observer and has subjects that they observe. Okay. So like the subject might be a, a cell in a laboratory or it might be mice in a laboratory or the subject might be a person that you're Mm -hmm. observing like neutrally engaging with somehow whatever that means right yeah which i mean there is no neutral observation sure so interpretivist research 
recognizes that, okay, we're all going to bring biases, but how can we have the researcher and instead of having subjects, we have participants. So how can we both as the researcher and participant bring knowledge together and co-create meaning? Mm -hmm. And so having that training and kind of like an ethnographic sensibility um, in this community that I'm already largely embedded in. Right. And right. then being able to There's no way to be in. neutral. I know you're yeah. already saying that. I but... am not neutral about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I recognize that. Like, my work comes from a place that is not neutral. Right. An outside um, observer with no opinions on healthcare. Right. Yeah. I'm not an outside observer. And I think that's okay. Yeah. Okay. And so you were um, talking to, to seven people. And so mm-hmm. what, gosh, six months is very fast. It's so fast. Yeah. I, so that was this past, uh, I did my interviews in December of this past year. Okay. I defended in April. Okay. Like a month ago. So fresh. So what, tell me, like, what did you, what were you asking or what was your, I don't know how to frame the questions the best way, but like, what, did, what were you asking and what did you come away with? Especially as like the people who are listening will be people living with chronic illness. And so I'm so curious about how that all came together for you. Like, what did you learn? Sure. Yeah. I was really mindful of the way I constructed my interviews. Um, I did semi-structured interviews. So I had questions that were more like themes. Mm -hmm. So I had a structure of themes I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. And then I would ask within those themes, I would ask follow-up questions as they came up. Yeah. But I didn't have like a survey of specific questions so right the themes I asked about were the history of their onset much like we've done here mm-hmm. history of onset um the process of getting a diagnosis mm-hmm. how long did it take who did you have to meet with what were the responses from doctors when you were sitting in their office yeah um and then I asked about barriers uh things that inhibited care and were barriers and also things that opened up access mm-hmm. yeah those interviews were gorgeous um being able to sit with people and hear their their stories of illness is just a very sacred gift yeah and oh i just feel so privileged to be able to sit with people and for them to trust me enough to share those stories about their lives um, it's a, I was asking them to share vulnerable stuff mm-hmm. and all of my participants were just so giving and beautiful, um, yeah. and sharing really difficult stuff. And also like, we're all in the process of understanding our illness mm-hmm. continually. Yeah. And yeah. so to be able to speak from still being oftentimes in the process of understanding it themselves. Yeah. And being able to share that in just such a coherent way. I mean, there's often times where I have brain fog and I literally can't think of the word, the right words that I want. Yeah. And so to sit with people and just hear them express things so beautifully. Yeah. Despite all of the brain fog and and cognitive issues. Yeah. You realize it's like, okay, if we both show up and we both know that there is cognitive impairment, perhaps on both sides, depending on the day, depending on the symptoms, depending on whatever. And like, we're just going to make space for that and let that be an okay part of a conversation. Because I think sometimes that 
by itself, that can be a barrier of like, I have to show if I want to go somewhere, I want to go to an event or I want to participate in something like I have to either try to mask it, whatever that might look like. Like I want to either go and I'm going to show up and I'm going to try to pass because passing is just easier than explaining it or I'm not going to pass. And then I'm going to have to navigate and again, like everything yeah. else aside. So like it's mobility, aids, choice. yeah, mobility aids and all other kind of visual indicators of illness aside, like just how we engage with people can be so, and that takes energy, like, and energy is precious. Yeah. There's something about having this kind of conversation where you're like, we both have the same basic understanding of like what the barriers might be to, yeah, right now I don't have it, but like to good expression, to coherent expression, because there are many. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so to convert those interviews into a like scholastic work, how how does that go? Or for people who um, were faculty very like aware of this as an issue before, did you find your faculty, obviously? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's two parts to that question. Uh, remind me about the first one was just kind of like, yeah, later. Okay. Remind me. Yeah. I'm going to write it down as a note. Cause... Yeah. 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 I Memory tend... is not not great for me uh, and I would be a terrible scholastic researcher because I tend to ask just five questions at once and see which one sticks <laughs> which means that I get wildly different topics covered all the time but that's fine <laughs> that's great I want to talk about all the different topics yeah um so my my main goal with the research I had two goals one was to document and to have in public record and in academic record yeah the lived experiences of people with myalgic encephalomyelitis. Mm -hmm. So one of the main chapters in my thesis was the lived experience. Um, Yeah. So just like documenting, this is what it is. This is, these are these people, this is what they have in common, et cetera. So being, yeah, being able to tell those stories in an academic space where Mm -hmm. I've, I've already started with my literature review. I've covered like the social, medical, cultural history and all of those academic aspects yeah and then with that framework I can now dive into these are informed by all of that academic research Mm -hmm. these are the stories of real people who are living out their lives and here are the barriers that are coming up Mm -hmm. here's how it links to like broader more quantitative research of Mm -hmm. like prevalence and things like that yeah so linking it to okay we know this we know that there are about this many people with ME we know that on average people with chronic illness need to see this many doctors yeah, or it takes many. this many years. Yeah. I'm forgetting the actual numbers. But they're definitely know that. high. Yes. So we know that broadly. What does that look like for an individual person? And then being mm-hmm. able to tell that story in an academic setting mm-hmm. um, was one of my main goals. And then my other goal was to end with a chapter on recommendations. So having like a bulleted list of like here. So I broke it down into... Uh, macro, meso, and micro levels. So like institutional level macro recommendations for institutions. Mm -hmm. And then like meso level um, for physicians. So I had recommendations for like, okay, you're an individual physician in this system. Mm -hmm. What can you do? And then also I had recommendations for patients um, that were from the participants. So participants would say like, 
these are the things that worked for me. Yeah. And these are the things I wish that I know now that would have helped me 10 years ago when I was starting out yeah. doing this. And so I was able to document like, yeah, institutions need to add myalgic encephalomyelitis to the medical curriculum, yes. which is a battle in and of itself. But just to be able to document that in an academic space mm-hmm. um, and yeah, laying out for physicians. So when I asked what the barriers were to care, 50% of the response, 51% of the responses had to do with physician behavior. Yeah, that sounds so true. Half of it was a, a mixture of like insurance and financial issues and yeah. uh, geography, like being able to get to a specialist mm-hmm. and all of, and other barriers of like not it not being in the curriculum and right. all of those things. And then half, was all about physicians who dismiss, physicians who lack communication skills and follow through, physicians who um, use dehumanizing language mm-hmm. towards patients. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge takeaway from the research, which is not, su- it's not surprising to me. Right. Um, and one of the participants said, like, in our community, like, we know this. Right. We know that doctors use dismissive language. We know that it's a problem. But, like, the wider society and the wider like medical community doesn't know what we know. Right. 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 And just healthy people and people yeah. who, which translates into people who are making media. So, yeah. And when yeah. I say that, I mean all kinds of media, like people who are choosing what books get published, people who are writing movies, yeah. people who are writing TV shows. Like I, there's, I've seen almost zero representation of just what I know is a super common dynamic between patients who are like non-diagnosed patients because I, I personally am now choosing not to use the word undiagnosed because I think there's a lot of uh, willful non-diagnosis that goes on in this exact thing. Um, But that's another like war that I want to wage at some point because that's what it is when you choose not to look at somebody's symptoms and you choose to send them home with a mental health diagnosis when they don't have an underlying mental health problem. Like, you as a doctor are choosing not to pursue diagnostic, not to pursue diagnosis. And I think that's like not represented at all. And people who haven't been through it or haven't cared for someone who's been through it have no idea how rampant it is. And that's infuriating. Anyway, that's a small rant for me. Sorry. Continue. I'm I'm with you on that. (laughs) Yeah. The, a refusal to see a problem that is pretty well, is very well documented. Uh, yeah academically documented but also like they have patients sitting right in front of them that are telling them things yeah. and there is also a refusal there yeah it's very dehumanizing yeah um your second question did i re- answer enough about the research yeah yeah that makes sense to process? me yeah i'm just kind of like what the undertaking was and then what you came away with yeah yeah so, i mean it was just a lot of sitting at a computer and like it was a lot of coding, which I had never done before. So like mm. going through the interviews and tagging yeah. different themes, like, okay, here they're talking about <clears throat> dismissive language and yeah. here they're talking about insurance barriers and here they're talking about the onset. Yeah. So I would code it and then that allowed me to look for patterns. Yeah. It's like converting which, the story into data. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, so then faculty. My faculty was awesome. They were wonderful. I, especially coming from it's a very interdisciplinary program yeah I believe that uh which worked very well for me because I at least in my cohort of 
uh, students. I was the only one doing a healthcare and health related thesis. Okay. Um, so I, I was just so fortunate. So I want to talk about my three thesis advisors because I was able to get someone. I had someone from the social justice and human rights department. Mm-hmm. Um, her background is in political science. And then I was able to get someone from the justice studies department on, on a different campus. Um, and her background is in disability studies and terrorism. Mm. And then I had my third committee member was in the English department and she specialized in like the history of medicine, like um, 17th and 18th century texts, novels, poems, okay. sometimes like scientific texts and how ideas about medicine formed over those centuries. Ooh, that would be super interesting. So I had like three very different fields mm-hmm. and I was able to draw from their expertise and really overlap that. And I had a lot of people warn me like, don't get thesis committee members from different departments because they will compete with each other yeah, and they'll make send your life you miserable. Directions. I that might be that may be true for some people. It was not true for me. And I think having all women on my board, like it was a very collaborative experience. Mm-hmm. And like having people from different fields of expertise just they, we were able to bring all that knowledge together and yeah. kind of like check and balance things, but also also expand into areas where I might not have, have considered. Yeah, yeah, great. definitely. Because there is so much more context, like because I mostly just talk to people, talk to patients, like there's so much broader context that I think a lot of us, myself included, aren't really aware of until we have the time and energy to go digging into like, yeah. okay, well as one example, like what is the legacy of hysteria and how does this impact the way that we're treated by doctors each day? Like you have to go digging for that, which means you have to have the energy for that. And you have to have the cognitive comprehension for that. Like all of these things that can prevent you from really understanding the larger picture um, when you're just trying to get through the day. Yeah. So I felt very lucky that I had faculty members that were very rooted in, Mm -hmm. in, in theories that supported research mm-hmm. about chronic illness. Yeah. Um, and also with personalities that allowed all of that collabor- collaboration. Yeah, all of it and to come together. That sounds I, excellent. Yeah. And so you literally just finished, it I sounds just like. Finished. You're probably just breathing. Yeah, I would think. so exhausted. Yeah, I think at this point after when I went to grad school, I was like for months, I was just like lying around being like, it's okay, brain. It's okay. You don't have yeah. to like live in that world anymore yeah Um, I definitely feel like I'm still in recovery mode yeah so what now back to just like life stuff so what is your day-to-day like now recognizing that it's obviously probably radically in transition because school is like a kind of unique schedule that yeah can really suit some people I think with chronic illness because you don't have to sit in an office from nine to five or whatever, do things super physical. So kind of what is your day-to-day life or what are you planning to build? Like, how do you want to shape your life? What makes sense to you right now? This is what I mean about the compound questions. I am currently very much in transition. Yeah. Um, And going from such a high intensity, like I have to get this thesis done in a very short amount of time, like every Mm -hmm. day, high intensity, working as hard as I can without Mm -hmm. breaking Mm -hmm. um, to going to, nothing yeah is 
think that's drastic. Um, so currently I am putting together applications for PhD work. So mm. I'm applying to PhD programs, mm-hmm. which is so labor intensive. I don't know how people do it. Yeah. Like over a long time. It takes, I've been, I've been working on this for a year. Yeah. Just the application process. Yeah. 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 It's, it looks like a lot. Whenever my brain has been like, what if you did go back to school? I like just get into reading the, you know, requirements and I'm like, no, you don't want to do that right now. (laughs) Like that's a lot of prerequisites that you may or may not have. I love being in school and I really want to build on the research that I did. So I feel like my thesis was even now there are like, I know exactly where the areas of weakness are in my thesis. Mm -hmm. Um, and I want to be able to do more interviews. I want to be able to apply it more and I want to build on what I've already done. Yeah. And the place to do that is in PhD program for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm applying to a bunch of different programs and, and hopefully see. next fall we'll be doing that. In the meantime, I'm looking for um, either like contract work or just like local nonprofits I can yeah. work with here to make some money. Yeah. Places where you can perhaps <laughs> work slightly, but also not like overextend and throw your whole equilibrium out of whack. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. Well, is there anything that's on your brain that we have not gotten to today, either in your own story or in the kind of broader context, since that's what you've been looking at so much? Um, I've been thinking a lot about how to articulate this experience about health to people who do not have the experience and how to translate that into political action which is so hard because people don't want to talk about your disease and they don't want to talk about politics so being able to talk about like like when healthcare is on the line like when there are bills in the senate that threaten my access to healthcare. Like, how can I harness the academic knowledge I have, but also the personal relationships that I have to create some sort of change with that? Mm-hmm. Mostly I've been very frustrated and, and sad about it. Yeah. But um, I'm trying to get to a place where I can do something positive Yeah. with that. Um, even talking to like extended family members who, or even people in general who have good health and so healthcare means something to them. It is completely different than what it means to me. Yeah. And getting better at having those conversations in a productive way. Yeah. I think a lot about like now. So I'm at about, I've done over 40 interviews. So I'm closing in on 50 right now. I don't think I've crossed it yet. Um, and I think a lot about like, what do I want to do with just the language that I've accumulated? Because for me, that was for, for me, this project, that's been a huge part of it of like, how are we all talking about it when we all have these cognitive impairments? Yeah. So I think everybody has figured out like one thing to articulate really clearly and then is looking for ways to articulate other parts of the experience. And if we can mm, like, like collect enough of it, I think that there's a lot of this has been so well documented on an individual level that there's stuff worth sharing here. And what does that look like? 
for me and like who do I want to reach out to because with this podcast I'm like I'm interviewing people with chronic illness and maybe there's something else that they have like a professional lens that they are also bringing in like you are but also maybe not but I'm not talking to people who are only coming with a professional lens so practitioners or researchers or whatever who have never experienced the actual going through it themselves no and like I'm going to assume that listeners have chronic illness and it's cool if they don't like thanks for listening healthy people I guess because I know some healthy people do listen but like I'm not trying to translate in the course of these conversations Mm -hmm. but after this many conversations like I feel pretty prepared to translate and so how and to whom and in what way like same questions that you're asking like I would love to talk to doctors about what the to talk to doctors about what the diagnostic experience feels like on the other side, which I think is, you know, part of what you have definitely run into. And even like, I've talked about this on the podcast before, for sure. Like right now there's no feedback mechanism in medicine. So like the doctor who, you know, you, who gave you estrogen cream and then sent you home and then you gave up on and went to a new doctor, like that doctor I mean, I don't know, maybe in your specific case, there was some feedback, but like that doctor could just as well think that he solved your problem. Yep. And like, that's not your fault, but that's a that's a really big systemic hole that feels yep. maybe not easy to address, but like an obvious place to start. And there's yep. so much stuff like that where you're like, they just don't know. Nobody's telling them. I mean, doctors know that misdiagnosis is a problem, but they don't know that it's their problem, basically. Like all and that, that stuff. as big of a problem as it is yes yes and especially especially I would say with the mental health misdiagnoses like and again because I talk about this so much like not that I don't think that depression is real or not that I don't think that anxiety is real and not that I don't think people should be treated for both of those things because I absolutely do and I absolutely think that they're comorbid with a lot of these other diagnoses as well but when doctors just say oh sounds like depression like take this SSRI and go home that's it's not a treatment plan. No. And yeah. it's and it, it can be comorbid. Like it is possible to have many other like you can have cancer and depression at the same time. Yeah. You can have chronic illness and depression or anxiety at the same time. Yeah. And like you, you treat them you treat those two things differently. Yeah. And it's even the same as like that intersection of when is talk therapy helpful and when is it mm. not? As like yeah. and I'm sure this comes up so much with ME just because there's yep. still the PACE trial still underlies so many yep. treatment plans and like nobody's out nobody with ME is out there saying that therapy isn't helpful for anyone they're saying that cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't cure ME these are different but related concepts and like parsing out that nuance on a cultural level feels very important yeah <sighs> it is yeah so when I have conversations with acquaintances it's usually me sharing what my chronic illness means day to day for me. Mm -hmm. And then the response is very often something along the lines of, well, I've been reading this about like positive thinking. Have have you tried positive thinking? Yeah. Which that's such a common, I'm saying it out loud and real. That is so common for people with chronic illness to approach that. I don't want to be the person who is like, knocking down positive thinking is not helpful because absolutely it helps but it's not an answer to what I just talked about like yeah and if I if I told them about a different sort of disease that has been that has a different cultural meaning yeah and it I don't think that would be the response yeah and it depends like it depends on how 
deep into toxic positivity the person is yeah. sometimes yeah. as to like how many things they think it can cure. Um, Cause I think about it a lot as using diabetes as an example of like mm-hmm. when people have type one diabetes specifically, I, and I'm sure people with type one diabetes get all kinds of bullshit. And I know the diagnosis takes longer than it should. And like, yeah. I, I don't mean it in that way. Like, wouldn't it be nice if we all had type one diabetes? Things but, need to be better in a lot of different yeah. areas. But like, we're at a point where with type one diabetes, culturally, we understand that like insulin is the answer because yeah. we understand that all like the pathology of it is that your pancreas has stopped making insulin. And so nobody, well, this isn't true. I'm sure somebody out there is like, you can positive think your way out of that. But most reasonable people would never suggest that the way that they suggest it for things that are understood more poorly. But again, I I know that type 1 diabetics go through a lot of bullshit. So I'm sorry to any type 1 diabetics who are listening who are like, no, I get a lot of bullshit. I know that you do. Yeah, I think we all have to wade through a lot of misconceptions Mm-hmm. And at least for me, I haven't been successful in offering an alternative to those misconceptions. I don't know if it's because I'm not presenting it, articulating it well enough, or if it is just that hard for mm-hmm. people to change the way they think about illness. Well, and like, okay, gosh, what is, there's the name of this, the just world theory, maybe? I forget what it's called, but it's basically just like a thing from like an academic way of framing that like people want to believe that the world is just. And so it's a very neoliberal idea. Right. And so as a result, we really genuinely want to believe that bad things only happen to bad people. And so the flip side of that is that you couldn't possibly get sick in a way that you wouldn't be able to fix it if you just try hard enough. Like it's so deeply ingrained because healthy people want to believe that if they ever get sick, they'll be able to fix it. And it's One of the things understandable, but it's shitty. I, yes, yes to both of those. One of the things that came up in my research interviews was people who got ME who had originally believed, like, if, if I exercise and eat healthy, it will protect me. Mm-hmm. Like, if I exercise and eat healthy and take care of myself and live a healthy lifestyle, it is impossible for me to get sick. Right. I will always be healthy because I've made these decisions. And then to get a chronic illness like ME and have to deal with changing the way you think and the way you view the world is really, really hard. It is. It's really hard. And I think like, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just, I was going to go more off track. So (laughs) if you had a thought on this track, go ahead. Um. I understand why it's, um, I'm, I'm losing, I'm having a brain moment. What is the word? It's, it's comforting to believe yeah. that certain things can protect us. Like, sure. We want to be safe and to be okay. And so it is, yeah, there's a certain word that I want. It's not coming up. Um, it's very tempting to think that we can protect ourselves by eating right. Yeah. By exercising or doing all of those healthy things, which those are all good. Like those yeah. can, depending on the situation, like all those things can bring really good benefits, but it's not a shield. Totally. Totally. And they're still like being able to do those things is also like rooted in privilege in so many it different really ways. Is. And that's a, another thing. Um, gosh. So no. when I get really bummed out about how terrible all of these things are and just the the volume of doctors that have treated people terribly 
Um, I have found that going on Twitter and following like young up and coming doctors who are like pretty social justice oriented really helps me. Yeah. Um, not that it makes everything okay, but it does help me see like, oh, like there are people who recognize that there's a problem in the system, mm-hmm. are part of the medical system themselves, mm-hmm. and are actively not being part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I I need to see that at least occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really easy. And I, in my own language, I absolutely fall in this trap all the time. Like, it's really easy to think of it as like, well, there's patients and then there's doctors. And it's just like right. this, these two monoliths. And that's, I know that that's not true for a variety of reasons. But yeah, it's helpful to be like, there are doctors who recognize that there's a problem and who care that there's a problem. And also like, I do believe that most doctors go into medicine because they want to help people like, and understanding more about how that works systemically. Like I read a book recently called the digital doctor and it's about how technology has impacted medicine and it's, it's in all these different sections and it's super interesting. So it talks about like, um, now I forget the word, but just how like digital charts and then like as they become patient portals that we have access to and how all of this has changed like fundamentally what a doctor's job is and how much time they even have to relate to patients. And when you think about how much time they have to spend arguing with insurance companies in order yeah. to even offer the treatment that they think that you need, like yeah. it's yeah, doctors are put in a really, yeah, like they're between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. The system does not work for them to do their job well. No. And so it's like, being again having the cognitive energy to like think about this stuff and learn about this stuff is also a luxury but adding more nuance to the picture and I love I would love to see a list of some of your favorite doctors as an after part that we can share with this of like who so think about that because that is so great that was a really good question um but yeah oh I had one other thing that's a little bit of a backtrack that I was thinking of is that sometimes when people come at you with like have you tried positive thinking or whatever it is it's it's also that like come coming up with a way to respond to that that is I'll say educational. So, yeah. you know, half the time it's like, oh, I don't have any energy for this. So, I'm just going to like benignly agree. Like un- not challenge that position at all and let them go about thinking of it because I actually don't have an obligation to 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 educate anybody and it's a ton of emotional labor yeah. of like, I know that's the path of least resistance that I have certainly taken. And I think a lot of people take. And then on the other hand, there's like clapping back really loudly, which I think maybe sometimes can work and sometimes can't. And then this thing that I think you're kind of talking about of, of going like, well, at this moment I have the information and I have the space in my brain and I have the whatever to try to really engage a conversation about this and like, challenge their misconceptions and like that's it's it's powerful work and it's also one-to-one and it's so tiring yes it's exhausting it's so much emotional labor because it's so personal like I I can't have a conversation like that without walking away feeling a little bit like this person thinks that I don't want to get better yeah yeah and I, I don't think that that's what most people mean when they ask that kind of a question, but it's what they're saying. And like, I think that's another just rich, open question mark of like, how do we have these conversations when we want to be having them, which we have no obligation to do, by the way. Right. And keeping a very firm boundary of like, 
make sure that your health needs are met first. Mm-hmm. Not, you, know, you are not required to educate other people. But in situations where I, I am in this place of like my my symptoms are mild enough where I'm able to do quite a bit. Yeah. And I have also experienced, like I have experienced chronic illness enough that I understand that world and the language and the, like I'm embedded in that. Mm-hmm. But I'm also just healthy enough to like go to graduate school and right. do all of these things. I feel a responsibility for sure yeah. to, to use that in a productive way. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. And I also find it's interesting when you have like a barrier kind of, so I don't, I'm curious if you feel this way about your research. Cause now I feel this way with the podcast is it's like, I have this buffer space of credibility almost, or of some of experiences that I can draw on so that I'm not just arguing with somebody about my own health. I can be like, no, here are some patterns and here's some systemic stuff. And I can point you to bigger resources. Like that's a really different conversation than like, no, I don't want to eat more kale because that's not going to make a difference. Like, yeah. and, and you have to, I think you have to be resourced in order to create a buffer like that. If that, does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's interesting. <sighs> There's a lot of work to do. <laughs> and I mean, it takes a lot of different people. Yeah. Um, even doing my research and realizing that like, I need people that are more, have more of a brain for quantitative research to do those prevalence studies so that I can draw on that and do my own quanti- like qualitative work. Mm-hmm. And like, it takes all types of experiences and different types of thinking and different ways of research and mm-hmm. different, different people bringing their stories to the table. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't, I can't one conversation with one person I'm not going to convince them in one conversation. Right. Yeah. But I do think over time, like having multiple conversations in multiple, multiple modes of communication um, Mm -hmm. can create some good change. Yeah. Yeah. And I love read, like just having resources for that of like, Oh, you are a very analytical person who will never be swayed by individual stories. But like, here is a data rich book. Like if you want to know more about what I'm talking about, check out doing harm by Maya Dusenberry. Yeah. Compared to like, oh, you're really think like you're engaging with this on a really emotional level. Like, check out Through the Shadowlands by Julie yeah. Raymeyer. Like, they're different, very different books, but they talk about different parts of essentially the same problem. And yeah. different people are going to have different reactions to that. More books, please, yes. publishers on these topics. <laughs> I have noticed an upswing in that. Like, I've noticed more. Um like this kind of subgenre of doctors who have gotten sick and are now writing memoirs about it. Mm-hmm. Love that genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just more books from people who have chronic illness and are either writing about the data of yeah. it or their personal experiences. Like we need all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited as my reading list for this kind of stuff expands. I did. I did. Yeah. Like I asked people on Twitter recently for their favorite books about chronic illness. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. And it was very caveated because it was like I don't want memoirs that end in remission because some of those are really great but like as a genre it's not it's telling it's over okay wait what's the word that I'm looking for here it is over representing one kind of story at the expense of other stories so I was like I don't want that and I don't want straight up science books because I like those but like they're not very accessible to a lot of people and I don't want um 
self-help books in general. So I don't want people who are telling us what to do. And so that was really fun because I got some fiction. I got some just like other types of memoir. Like I think I had only read one or two books on the whole list. I was like, this is great because it's happening and it's just knowing about it and especially to be able to point new people to it, which is my favorite part of finding books that I love. <sighs> yeah. I think my go-to is to give someone a book. Yeah. Just because that is how it's a little selfish because that's just how I learn. Yeah. But I mean, it's a window into people's experiences and I really value that like as yeah. an educator and as a human, like I value being able to read. Like I, I think the book that I uh, put on your Twitter feed as a recommendation was asking me about my uterus, which is about endometriosis and mm-hmm. just covers a ton of the things that we've been talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, having a window into like, I don't have endometriosis but I relate to a lot of the things she went through, but also I get to see all of the different ways that it plays out for this yeah. author. Yeah. Which is so powerful. And if I can give that to someone else who lives as an able-bodied person, yeah, like could that change some the way someone views something? Yeah. Yeah. And like make little inroads, which is what yeah. that feels fine in a and lot breaking, of conversations. Breaking down those false... Uh, false barriers between like just like you were saying like there are patients and there are physicians and those are always different sets of people like Mm -hmm. that is just not true Mm -hmm. and I even catch myself in my thinking like every physician is at one point or another going to also be a patient Mm -hmm. like over their over everyone's lifespan we are all patients at some point Mm -hmm. we are all in the role of a patient at some point or another Mm mm-hmm and it's not like I, I have come to view uh, doctors and physicians more of like, I don't think that they are good or bad people. I just think they're people. Right. Like, physicians are going to act like humans mm-hmm. and humans are subject to all sorts of biases and yeah. all these other things. And we need to address that with the system. Yeah. Like the systemic bias, I think. And I also said something like that recently because I had asked people also on Twitter a little while ago, like, has a doctor ever told you something that turned out to be untrue? And a lot of people answered that, like hundreds of people answered that. It was mm-hmm. got some real traction. Um, yeah. But then because it got traction, people started showing up being like, doctors are just human. Like, what do you expect from doctors? And I was like, no, no, you're missing. Like, because, of course, it's people who don't know me, people who don't know the podcast, people who probably okay. don't know anything about chronic illness in general. I'm like, yep. no, this isn't a witch hunt for doctors. That's We're not naming doctors. Like, that's not what this is about. But if you read all of these stories, what you're going to notice is patterns. And, like, yep. that tells you about the systemic bias. And that's what I want to talk about. Like, And there's no accountability for it. Yes. Right. Right. That feedback loop problem again. <sighs> okay. I've made that noise a lot today. <laughs> That's what happens when we get into the systemic stuff. Um, thank you so much for taking the time yeah. to talk to me. I really appreciate your story and also the work that you're doing. I'm excited to see what happens next. Thank you. I'm so glad that I got to chat with you and, and be on this podcast. Thank you for listening to episode 46 of No End Insight. You can find Carmen on Twitter at Karma Sophia, which is C-A-R-M-A-S-O-P-H-I-A, all one word. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Venice B. 
And of course, you can find this show on Instagram at no.n.in.site.pod. I've been hosting, uh, I've been posting each episode as a story, but I haven't posted to the main feed in a while because I'm so behind on transcripts, which you know, because I talk about it literally every episode. But of course, that's the whole reason that I started the Patreon account. So I'm going to go ahead and plug that again. It's patreon.com slash no end in sight. Next week, I'll be talking to a woman with IBS who is also still navigating the whole diagnostic process. So make sure you subscribe in your podcast app to find out when new episodes are available. And if you've been enjoying this show, then I'd be so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners know what to expect from the show. And in fact, um, I get a lot of listeners from Australia, but I don't have any reviews from Australia at all yet. So if you're Australian and listening, I would be double extra grateful if you left a review. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. And finally, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. Home. I've got some fun fall patterns in the shop and uh, dozens of just very simple icons that you can customize or mix and match however you want. I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.